talk, but I nevertheless have the uh, pleasure of introducing our speaker today. Uh, so, Owen Jones was born in Sheffield, he grew up in Greater Manchester. He studied history uh, at University College Oxford, and his early career entry into the world of work included working as a trade union leader, uh, and then as a parliamentary researcher for the Labour Party. Uh, he then moved on to journalism as a columnist for the Independent, and he's also written frequent articles in the New Statesman and similar publications. He is now a weekly column writer for the Guardian newspaper, and he also appears regularly on television shows such as Question Time uh, and Free Speech as a political commentator. In 2011, he published his first book entitled Chaps, The Demonization of the Working Class, uh, for which he received various accolades, being selected, for example, as one of the top 10 uh, non-fiction books of 2011 by the New York Times. He's recently published another book, The Establishment and How They Get Away With It. Uh, I have a copy here if you haven't already read it, and I know a lot of you have. Uh, I can really highly recommend it. Make a great stocking filler as well. Uh, Owen Jones has been variously described as Our Generation's All Well by the comedian and author Russell Grant, uh, and uh, a brilliant young thinker and writer by the late, great Tony Benn. He is a prolific speaker, uh, and his use of social media reinforces channels of democracy are no longer working properly for ordinary people. Uh, in an age characterised by a crisis in confidence with politicians, um, voter disengagement, low voter turnout, uh, all of these sort of scandals that we see, for example, in the newspapers uh, and such like, um, and the rise of UKIP, of course, and so forth, I think that William really Jones represents a refreshing contribution to public debate. So we are hugely excited and indeed honoured to be hosting Owen Jones at the NCS today. And having read the book, uh, I can tell you now we are in for a highly thought-provoking uh, and also, I suspect, very entertaining talk. So please join me now in welcoming the journalist and broadcaster, Owen Jones. Uh, well, thank you for that. It's very sweet. And it's great, it's great to be here. Um, it's probably when I speak at schools and sixth forms, because I, I still always look like the youngest person in the room. Uh, <laughs> when I go and tell you people for asked, does my mum know I'm up this late? Um, I have actually taken the evening off my paper out to speak to you. <laughs> I'm actually, I joke, I'm actually 58, I've just had a face <laughs> It's great to be here. Um, I know you've newly opened it, so congratulations. It must be uh, a, bit of a, a bit of a thrilling ride for your teachers at the moment, because uh, opening a new sixth form is probably not an easy task, but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be here in Newham because somewhere I've been a fair bit. It's a place which I think has a big history, lots of traditions. It's a, it's a mixed, diverse community which I know people are very proud of and which we should always champion and we should stand against all of those people who try to divide us and attack that sort of diversity. But what I want to talk about kind of particular today, and I want to get a discussion going because I should clarify that I, I never wanted to be a writer, Oops. and actually all I wanted to do is, in however limited and modest way any individual can do, but to try and get a discussion going, get a debate going about the sort of society we live in, which I hold to be profoundly unjust and unfair and unequal, uh, but not just to kind of like stroke our chins and talk about how bad things are and how they don't work for people and how it's, you know, it's all rubbish and depressing, but to actually talk about what we can do about it, because it's my profound belief that we can change society, that you know, politics should be about optimism, that it should be about hope, and all hope means is that, um, that injustice is temporary, it's transient, and it can be overcome. 
and the defenders of every unjust social, uh, every unjust status quo, sorry, what they make us believe is that injustice is like the weather. You can complain about it raining, there's nothing you can do about it. It's just the way the world is. But I reject that. I think injustice is created by human beings and it can be destroyed by human beings as well. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk partly about the sort of society we live in, but I want to talk about what gives us hope, about how we can change that society, about how it doesn't have to be like this, if you like. And in terms of just starting, just to kick off, just to look at this society, well, this is the country now we live in. In the last five years, the wealth of the top, richest 1,000 people, has doubled. It's doubled during one of the worst economic crises in the modern history of this nation. And yet at the same time, the pay packets of working people, well they haven't fallen for this long since Benjamin Disraeli was Prime Minister back in the 1870s. This is a country where even as the wealth of those at the top has doubled, at the same time, Nearly one million Britons have been driven to food banks, 300,000 of them children, unable to even feed themselves. This is the sixth richest country on the face of the earth, and apparently the poorest people in society can no longer afford to eat. I don't think anybody, rationally, would design such a society from scratch. I think only a psychopath would design that sort of society where there's so much wealth, huge fortunes concentrated in so few hands, while so many other people struggle to even make basic ends meet. Now, if we think about what's happened in the last few years, well, what's happened is this. The, for working people, over 1 million workers since the claim of Canada Loving back in 2010, over 1 million workers have been driven into poverty pay, disproportionately women. This is a country where most people in poverty are in work. They earn their poverty, if you like, day after day. This is a country where we have another booming industry. I mentioned food banks, one booming industry in modern Britain, but another, legal loan sharks, like Wonga. In Britain, in 2014, one million families, each and every month, they have to depend on legal loan sharks in order to pay their rent, their mortgage, to feed their kids, or to clothe them. Last year, Wonga celebrated a surge in profits of 32%. Rich pickings, for the vultures circling overhead in austerity Britain. And with so many people struggling, there are profits to be made. At the same time, we have not just so many people unemployed, but we also have an army of zero-hour contract workers, disproportionately young people. This is like a return to a supposedly bygone era, where dockers marched to the yard in the morning and they stuck their hands up, hoping to get work that day, often to go home Disappointed. Well, now I meet young people who get text messages at 6 a.m. in the morning telling them if they get any hours that day because with a zero hour contract you have no set hours whatsoever. You can't build a life like that. There's no security. 
There's no stability. These are people deprived of pensions, forget about those. They have no paid leave. Not just paid maternity leave, but no paid sick leave either. You can't build a future. You can't settle down with a family with security and stability or, or have a home in that sort of condition. And then we have five million people who are stuck on social housing waiting lists, deprived of the basic, most, one of the most fundamental rights a person can have, and a home they can afford for them and their children. And this city, London, this city we're now in, this prosperous, booming city in this prosperous nation of ours, one of the richest countries that's ever, lived, that's ever existed in the history of humanity. And yet, even as foreign oligarchs snap up new-build properties, which they leave vacant, one in four young people in London grow up in an overcrowded home, deprived of one of the most, again, robbed, robbed if you like, of security, of dignity, their education, their well-being, their health, all damaged by growing up in a poor-quality home. And how does the government respond to this housing crisis? Well, they inflict one of the most unjust and cruel policies a government in this country has inflicted on its own people since the end of World War II. The bedroom tax. That means if you're in social housing and you're receiving housing benefit and you're judged to have a spare bedroom, then you have to pay up to, extra, up to 80 quid extra each month. Two thirds of those affected are disabled. These often rooms, for example, for carers to stay over, or where a relative has died. A woman got in touch with me who had a disabled daughter. Her disabled daughter died. Thus she had a spare room. Thus she had to pay a bedroom tax. Punishing people for the failure of successive governments to build council housing in this country. Forcing predominantly poor disabled people to cough up money they don't have, or to downsize to a smaller property that does not even exist. And that's the sort of nation that's been built. Now, I'm just going to sum up, in a way, how unjust it is. I want to give you this example. The financial sector, the banking elite, plunged this country into economic calamity. But they were not bailed out by free market government. They were bailed out by the state. They became Britain's most lavish benefit claim with hundreds of billions of pounds of public money to prop them up, but with one key striking condition, uh, difference, sorry, with other benefit claims. So few conditions attached to the support they're receiving from the state. Paying more bonuses than every single European Union country put together, with this government taking the EU to court, failing as they did so, as it turns out, last week, but took the EU to court to stop them imposing any limits on the bonuses they're paying out to their top, uh, to their top officials. Paying higher salaries in the aftermath of this financial crisis than their predecessors could even have dreamt of, not known as they were for their restraint, not lending, in many cases, to smaller businesses, helping to choke off economic recovery from a disaster they caused. Huge state support, but with so few conditions attached. But compare that to people at the bottom of society, Compare what happens to their state support in the aftermath of a crisis caused by somebody else. Now, these people, benefit claimants, unemployed people, often people thrown out of work precisely because of the behaviour of these people at the top who were bailed out by the state. Well, their state support has become ever more conditional or just stripped away altogether. So one example of this is called benefit sanctioning. For those who don't know what it is, it means this. 
If you're in receive of the receipt of benefits and you don't abide by the strict conditions attached to receiving support from the state, then your benefits are stopped. Two, three, maybe more weeks. According to charities, it's one of the main reasons we've seen such an increase, such an explosion in food banks in this country. Because people receive no money whatsoever, they can't afford to feed themselves. Often these sanctions are imposed for the most spurious reasons. I want to give you an example. A six-year-old man, an army veteran in Manchester. Now, he was selling poppies for the Royal Legion, selling poppies to raise money for injured and former comrades of his. And he's desperately looking for work. It's hard at the age of 60 if you're out of work often to get any work, and he's trying hard, including at a supermarket where he was selling poppies. He had his benefit sanction stopped for two weeks on the basis that his volunteering for the Royal Legion showed he wasn't trying hard enough to look for work. Compare and contrast, huge state support for those at the top, but with very few conditions attached. But for those at the bottom, state support ever more conditional or just taken away altogether. What that is is socialism for the rich, and it's capitalism sink or swim for those at the bottom. If you're at the top, you will be rescued by the state. If you're at the bottom, you're on your own, and you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps, regardless, to paraphrase Barack Obama, of whether you have boots in the first place. Now, I don't think that's just, I don't think it makes sense. And just as another example of this, tax avoidance. Now, in this country, at this time, we have the biggest cuts being imposed on public services and benefits for generations. And at the same time, we have those at the top refusing to pay their taxes. £25 billion is estimated each and every year is lost through tax avoidance. The likes of Google, the likes of Amazon, the likes of Sir Philip Green, who owns Top Man and Topshop, he registered his company, his British company, under his wife's name in Monaco, so he doesn't have to pay any taxes. Now, here's the thing, I interviewed one of the heads of the big four accountancy firms. Now, these big four accountancy firms facilitate tax avoidance by these rich companies and individuals. But I said to him, you know, I bought all this thing. And he said, hang on a minute. You want to complain about tax avoidance, taking up the government, because tax avoidance is legal. It's not like tax evasion, which is just breaking the law. Tax avoidance is going against the spirit of the law without going against the letter of the law. You exploit loopholes and so on. And his point is, if you don't like this tax avoidance, take it up with the government. But here's the thing. These big four accountancy firms are seconded to government. They're sent to government as advisors on drawing up legislation on tax, and then go off and tell their clients how to avoid the very legislation they helped to draw up in the first place. It would be like benefit claimants being sent to government to draw up legislation on benefits in order to be able to properly exploit that legislation. It doesn't make any sense. And again, it's this one rule for those at the top, and it's this one rule for everybody else. The rest of people can't, people can't afford an army of expensive accountants and lawyers to go and find these loopholes and exploit them for them, let alone draw legislation on their behalf. And that's at a time when so many people are struggling and these public services are under attack. I don't think that makes sense. I don't think it makes sense when you have a society so rigged in favour of so few people, whilst for millions of other people, life becomes ever harder and ever more insecure. But that's the sort of society that is being built at the moment. And the problem is this, 
What the Conservative Party did is they used the crisis of the market, of the private sector, and they turned it into a crisis of public spending. The biggest lie in British politics today is that we're in this mess because Labour spent too much money on schools and hospitals, even though the Conservatives backed their spending plans pound for pound until the end of 2008. But what they did is they used this crisis very cleverly to push policies they always wanted to get away with but didn't think was otherwise possible. Like, for example, the privatisation of our National Health Service. Now, they didn't have the guts to put that to the people of this country because they knew they knew, as Nigel Lawson, a former Conservative Chancellor Exchequer once put it, that the NHS is the closest the English have to a religion. But what they did, according to, uh, this is, you know, before the election, the former Secretary of State for Health, former privatiser in chief, if you like, um, he, under the Conservatives, his private office was given £21,000 by the former head of Care UK, one of the key private healthcare firms now benefiting from the privatisation of the NHS in the run-up to the last general election. Now that was a worthy investment uh, on the part of private healthcare companies who are now benefiting from the privatisation and fragmentation of our NHS. And the reason they object to the NHS so much is its very existence is a rejection of everything, if you like, the modern prevailing ideology of our time says, which is it's all about profit and the market rather than about people's needs. If you have an NHS whose fundamental principle is people's needs rather than making profit, that is a rejection of the status quo that is increasingly, of course, been built over the last few years. But here's the problem. This is the problem. Ever since this crisis began, people's anger has been ceaselessly, remorselessly, and cynically redirected away from those at the top of society to people's neighbours down the streets instead. That we're encouraged to turn on each other because of the situation we're in, rather than being angry with those with power. Now what this is, is the politics of envy. Sounds like an odd thing for someone like me to say, because when someone like me says, those at the top are doing very well at the moment, better than they've ever done in the history of this country, while so many people are struggling. Surely they can afford to contribute a bit more. Well, there's a very quick and easy response to that, which is, that is the politics of envy. Because if you stand up for the bottom 70%, they call you a class warrior. You stand up for the top 1%, and they call you a moderate. But the reality is, it's those at the top who pursue constantly the politics of envy. Because they try to get struggling people to envy each other. So they say to low-paid workers, well this is the politicians and the media, they say to low-paid workers, your wages, whose wages are falling, they've been cut by their bosses in real terms, their in-work benefits, because of course millions of working people depend on in-work benefits from the state because their wages are so low, they're being cut. But they said, they're told, don't be angry with your boss. Don't be angry with the government. Envy instead of the unemployed person down the road, living in luxury in a, in a mansion made out of widescreen television sets. Or they say to, to private sector workers, where pensions have been decimated over the last few years, one of the great scandals of our time. And they say to them, don't be angry with your boss. Envy instead the nurse or the teacher down the road 
whose pension is still intact. Why should they get a pension when you don't? Well, they say to people who can't get an affordable home for them and their family because governments haven't built council housing or can't get a, a secure job because they've been stripped from our economy by industrial and economic vandalism. They say to those people, don't be angry with the powerful. Envy the immigrant, the foreigner, getting a home or a job that should rightfully be yours instead. And that is the politics of envy. It's the politics of divine and rule. What they tell people is, you're being robbed, so your less deserving neighbour, they should be robbed as well. Rather than asking why anybody is being robbed in the first place. And that is, if you like, how those at the top of the powerful shield themselves. Because they know if people are angry with each other, then they will never be held responsible for the situation that they are responsible for. And this is, of course, the problem, because there's so much anger out there. There's so much fear, but there's one thing missing, and that's hope. And without hope, people give up, they become resigned, they join the biggest party in the country, which isn't the Conservatives or Labour or the Lib Dems, it's the yelling at the TV party. All their anger is redirected at their neighbours. And that's where UKIP come in. Now, the thing about UKIP is this. This is the anti-establishment party, apparently. The anti-establishment party led by that rare breed of British politician, a privately educated white man who worked as a city broker. An anti-establishment party bankrolled by, by ex-Tory multi-millionaires. An anti-establishment party whose latest two members of parliament are two privately educated Tories, one who works in the city, the other in asset management. An anti-establishment party whose policies are really original, like slashing taxes on the rich, privatising public services, and scrapping what remaining rights working people have. Really sticking it to the map That's the problem. This is the problem. Unless people are given hope, then of course the likes of UK are going to be able to push and promote the politics of fear. Because they know that people won't have this sense that things can change. Instead, people become resigned and their anger can be turned on their neighbours instead. And that's why people have to be given hope. Because the situation in this country is going to get a lot bleaker and a lot more depressing otherwise. Your generation will be the first in a century to be worse off than your parents unless something gives. You will struggle in many cases to get an affordable home, to get a secure job. You will be punished with debt for aspiring to a better education. You will have services being slashed away. Your living standards will fall. But it doesn't have to be like that. This is not an enemy, as it's often portrayed. This sense of injustice being like the weather. And that's where hope comes in. Now, I just want to give you an example of how it would work. One day, we will look back at the idea that you could get up in the morning, slog your guts out, struggle and toil in work, and come home with a wage packet that doesn't let you look after yourself, let alone your family. We will look back at that in disbelief. And we will also look back in horror at the idea that we spend billions of pounds of public money every single year subsidising poverty wages with in-work benefits. And that is why we have to fight the basic principle that if you are in work, the least you deserve is a living wage. So, say the housing crisis. We don't know the cost to human beings 
of a housing crisis where five million people are stuck on social housing waiting lists, where families are driven into an often unregulated rip-off private renting sector with no security, where people are, end up going from landlord to landlord, with kids not being able to separate down the community, shunted from school to school. We don't know the impact on people's health, their education, their well-being, but we do know the cost of the taxpayer because we spend £23 billion a year on housing benefit. That's not lining the pockets of tenants. It's often subsidising private landlords, charging rip-off rents. And that's why we've got to control private rents, but also give councils the power to build housing again, creating jobs, stimulating the economy, bringing down the 5 million strong social housing waiting list, and also bringing down the amount of spend on housing benefit. The same with jobs. It's the same with the fact that we waste people's lives. Not just with underemployment, as I discussed, unemployment, nearly a million people, young people out of work, which has a huge impact on their, on their mental health and also leaves them more likely to suffer from unemployment and lower wages for the rest of their lives, scarring their core. So instead of that waste of life in Taiwan, we should learn from countries like Germany, where they didn't have this dogma, you let the market decide, the state doesn't pick winners or losers. Instead, they intervene to create hundreds of thousands of jobs in renewable energy, taking on the environmental and the jobs crisis as well. But instead of bailing out the banks and just leaving them to carry on doing what they did before, these banks that plunged this country into an economic disaster, for which, of course, we still suffer every single day, that instead, we should use the banks we, the people, bailed out to turn them into publicly accountable investment banks to help rebuild our shattered economy. Accountable to the people, us, this country, those who rescued them in the first place. Now, instead of going about benefit fraud all the time, which does exist, according to the government, it's worth 0.7% of all the money we spend on social security, 1.2 million pounds a year, compared to the 25 million pounds lost, because those at the top won't pay their taxes. So instead, we have to not just kick out these accountancy firms who are drawing up the law for their wealthy clients out of government, but we should clamp down on every single loophole to make sure that however rich someone is, they will pay every single penny of their taxes. And at a time when those at the top are doing so well, while so many people are struggling, the case for more progressive taxes on income and wealth, well, I think that case is more unanswerable than it's almost ever been in recent years. And take our utilities as well. We have, now I don't know if people remember, Ed Miliband called for a temporary freeze on energy bills. And he was basically presented as though he was the kind of reincarnation of Vladimir Lenin for doing so. It's like he was going to nationalise your mother or something. But according to the opinion polls, most people not only support that policy, most people support bringing energy back into public ownership rather than being controlled by other people who don't have the interests of the consumers of this country when millions of people have to choose literally between heating their homes and feeding their children. And what's interesting about that is our energy is already partly nationalised, except it's run by any state but our own, like EDF, a French state-run company. Apparently, the government's fine if foreign state-owned companies run our energy supply as long as they're not British. And it's the same with the railway companies. We spend now five times more subsidies on privatised railways than we did in the days of British rail. We have the most expensive rail system 
on the face of the earth. It's often more expensive to travel by plane halfway across the world than it is to travel by train in your own country. Ripping off millions of people, fragmenting, inefficient. So instead, as each franchise, each company expires because it's leased out to these franchises, they must be brought back under public ownership, which costs not a single penny to do. And we need to talk about childcare as well, because in other countries like Sweden, it's capped at 4% of what you earn. In this country, families can spend between a third and a half of their entire income on their children. It's not only driving people often into hardship, but making people have to choose, you know, make difficult decisions about their children and their work. And that's why we need universal proper childcare, which people can actually afford like they have in other countries. And it's the same with workers' rights. If rights are good enough for German or Belgian workers, they should be good enough for British workers as well. Workers shouldn't just be commodities that can be hired at fine at will with no security. We need trade unions to have proper rights again. Because the falling wages in this country began not with Lehman Brothers when it collapsed. It began years before that, even as companies were posting record profits. And the reason for that is our trade unions have been so weakened they're not able to get a proper slice of the wealth that working people are creating and give it to workers themselves. And that's why we need stronger trade unions as a counterweight to all this wealth being sucked constantly into the bank accounts of so many people at the top. Now, I don't think these ideas are particularly radical. I don't think they're extreme. I don't think they're off on the fringes. I think they're just common sense. But they're about building a different sort of society. Not a society rigged in favour of a tiny group of people at the top, but a society that's actually about transforming people's lives and making people's lives better. A society on the basis of people's needs and aspirations, not for profit for a small group of people, and crucially, about hope. Not politics where it's about how hard you can kick an immigrant or an unemployed person, but politics more just and more equal and more fair. I think that's what politics should be about. But this is what gives me hope. Because the thing is, anyone who opposes a status quo, they're patronised, they're ignored, or they're demonised, or humiliated. You know, if you, if you believe in social justice, if you're too poor, they accuse you of envy. If you're too rich, they accuse you of hypocrisy. If you're too young, they accuse you of being naive. If you're too old, they accuse you of being a dinosaur. You literally cannot win. But this is what gives me hope. Because everything we have in this country, all the rights, all the things often now under attack, they weren't given to us by the goodwill and generosity of those with power. Powerful people didn't wake up one day and think, oh, I'm feeling generous today, maybe I'll give the women, women the vote for a change. Instead, people had to organise from below, sometimes at great cost and sacrifice to themselves. Like, for example, the toll puddle martyrs of the 1830s, agricultural workers in Dorset, who set up a, an early trade union, and they set up a trade union to fight for their rights, their wages, dignity, all the rest of it. And they were punished by being transported to Australia. Now, in response, hundreds of thousands of people, they signed petitions, they gathered in the streets in one of the first great political demonstrations in the history of this country. And they got them back. And I think of other trade unionists who fought for the rights and dignity of working people. I think of the Chartists of the 19th century, the world's first great working class political movement. I think of the suffragettes, who are now treated virtually as secular saints, but in their time, they were hated. 
demonised. They were terrorists and anarchists. They were locked up in prisons and they were forced I think of those who thought racism, sexism, homophobia, spat out in the streets, battened by police officers. I think of those who built the NHS, who built the welfare state, all won in the teeth of determined opposition from those in power. We stand on the shoulders of giants. Everything we have, all the rights, all the gains, they were not just given to us from above, they were won because our ancestors, they fought for them. And that's what gives me hope today. Because all the injustices we face, all the problems, I don't think that they're inevitable. And I think our history teaches us otherwise. I think it shows we can build a different sort of society that's actually running the interests of the people of this country. And if our ancestors can take on what seem like insurmountable odds and overcome them, I think we can do that as well. And I look all around me today, not just out of the history books, for inspiration. I think of, for example, the cinema workers at the Ritzy down in Brixton. Now, these are cinema workers who keep the cinema open. The cinema depends on their labour. They keep them open, they make sure the, the cinema makes profit. And they fought for the basic principle that if we are in work, the least we deserve is a wage we can live on. And they faced determined opposition and attacks from their bosses. They were threatening job costs. But they brought, built a broader coalition. They won people over. And they not only got a big increase in their wage packet, but they also took away and made sure those job cuts, those threats, that they were taken off the table. I think of the Curzon cinema workers who won the exact same thing, a living wage with no job cuts. I think of those who took on the bedroom tax. And the bedroom tax, when it was introduced, a lot of people thought, we're not going to be able to win this battle because people's attitudes are too hard. And there's been so much demonisation of people at the bottom of society. But they took to the streets, they gave a platform to people who were affected, and they not only won over public opinion, they got the Labour leadership to commit to repealing it, and in Scotland they got rid of the bedroom tax altogether. I think of the likes of UK and Cup, who angry at tax avoidance by those at the top of society at times, so many cuts, who occupied shops and businesses whose owners were complicit in tax avoidance. And they forced that issue on the agenda, and now politicians are falling over themselves to talk about cracking down on tax avoidance. What does that tell us? It tells us we can win. And often, with all the other problems we face, whether it be the facts in London, if you're a black man, you're six times more likely to be stopped by a police officer. Whether it be, for example, the way women are objectified and attacked in our media. Whether it be the rampant Islamophobia promoted and inflamed by our media and by politicians. All of these can be overcome. They can be overcome if we have the same determination, the same conviction, and the same sense of hope as our ancestors. And if we do that, if we have that courage and dedication and foresight that our ancestors showed, fighting as they did, far more insurmountable odds than the ones that face us today, then we can build a different sort of society, not one where it's all about kicking the poorest and attacking immigrants, where we become ever more xenophobic and insular and divided and unequal, where wealth and power is constantly funnel to those at the top of society while we all scrap around for the scraps and attack each other for having slightly more scraps than our neighbours. But we don't have that sort of society. 
where we build a society that is just and equal and fair. But that's up to all of us, and that's my kind of final plea to end on. That it's not just about what well, I hope now to hear from you and have you hear about your experiences, your thoughts, maybe you completely disagree with what you But regardless, it is up to you and other people like you to change the society, to build a different one, to confront injustice, to fight for a different sort of future. And if you do that, then you will take control of your own destiny. You won't have to face the inevitability of a worse lot in life than your parents before you. And I think in years to come, people will ask, what did you do? What did you do to confront injustice and to build a different sort of society? And I think it would be good to have a pretty concrete answer. So have that same sense of hope and optimism that our ancestors did. And if you do, then you will build a different sort of society and future generations don't thank you. Thank you.